Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you all very much for showing up. I'm very excited about this episode of Money Concepts because we have a wonderful guest, Gautam Bade, on the show. Uh, so Gautam is a good friend of mine. And even before meeting him, I had uh, read his book, The Joys of Compounding. Uh, this is a wonderful book. I like to think of the book as made up of two components. Uh, so the first component in the book is a set of investing lessons and ideas drawn from a variety of different sources. So there is wisdom from uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. There is uh, Ben Graham. There's Howard Marks. Uh, even um, George Soros. Um, there's this, um, uh, Morgan Housel. Uh, all, all these different people um, have said uh, various things about uh, investing at various points in their lives. And um, some of these great ideas, uh, Gautam has sort of collected them and put them into one place. And uh, I think if someone uh, who's new to investing or who wants to get these ideas, if they wanted to go to the original source material and get all these different ideas, uh, they'll have to dig through a lot, uh, search a lot, and possibly read through thousands of pages. Whereas this is one book, uh, this serves as a one-stop shop for uh, all this investing wisdom. So that is one component of the book. The second component of the book is Gautam takes these ideas and then uh, he supplements them with his own commentary and his own experiences applying these ideas to real life investments. And uh, that is very useful because uh, these are these ideas are sort of like lofty ideas to aim for. So Warren Buffett says, uh, be fearful, others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Uh, not exactly easy to do. Uh, so uh, how, how do you take some of these ideas? How do you apply them in practice? What kinds of challenges you go through? Uh, so Gautam's own personal experiences with these ideas. And that makes the book a lot more uh, sort of readable. And uh, uh, you, you get a feel uh, for how uh, these things apply in real life. So it's it's one thing to learn from uh, people who are uh, simply professing ideas. It is another to learn from people who are practicing these ideas. And Gautam uh, sort of very nicely balances the two in his book. So I, I, I like the book a lot. And if you haven't uh, read it, uh, I would suggest that you go and read it. Um, the second thing is, uh, so Gautam lives in the US, but... Uh, he invests predominantly in Indian companies, companies that are trading on the Indian stock markets. And uh, he is very, very bullish about India's long-term economic prospects. And uh, his area of expertise uh, is small and mid-cap Indian companies. So not, not just the large companies in India, uh, but uh, the, the smaller companies. And he thinks this is a, a very fertile fishing ground for opportunities um, for the next uh, several decades. Um, so to help uh, investors who are based in the U.S., to help them take advantage of this opportunity that he sees in India, uh, Gautam is setting up a fund. And he's calling this fund Stellar Wealth Partners. So um, he has a bunch of uh, partners who will be investors with him. They will put their money uh, 
they'll give him their money and ask him to invest that money in small and mid-cap Indian companies, basically. And uh, this is what Gautam uh, is planning to do, uh, hopefully over the next several years. He's just getting the fund started um, these days. So I thought it would be a good uh, exercise to sort of talk to Gautam, uh, find out uh, how he came to write his book, what are the opportunities he sees in India, what are some basic principles of fund management? Because managing an individual portfolio is one thing, but managing other people's money, uh, it's a completely different ball game. There are a different set of constraints involved. Uh, fund manager has uh, lots of opportunities. There are um, and constraints. So you may wish to. Uh, so so there are things that you can do with your own portfolio that you may not be able to do when you have a bunch of. Uh, other people and they are investing their money with you. So I thought we'd talk to Gautam about all these different things and then also give you an opportunity to ask him questions and so on. Uh, so Gautam, do you want to say a few words to get started? Oh, uh, thank you for the kind introduction, 10K. It's a pleasure to be here and I hope to add value to, to our audience by talking about my experiences and learnings and about how to position for longevity as an emerging fund manager in the investment business. Uh, so, so Gautam, can, can you just talk us uh, through how you came to write this book? Like, um, so where, where did you grow up? What did you study? How, how did you become interested in investing? And ultimately, what led you to write The Joys of Compounding? And um, how did it become a bestseller? How did you get Gaish Peer to uh, write a foreword to the book? just um, a, a mini history lesson uh, where you started and how you got interested in investing and how you came to write this bestseller. Sure. So just like most investors in the stock market, I was attracted to the stock market uh, during the final euphoric phases of a bull market. In my case, it was the 2003 to 2007 bull market in India. I still remember in, the, in late 2007, I had purchased a mutual fund named Reliance Power Sector Mutual Fund. And in January 2008, I had purchased a stock named Ispat Steel because both of these investments were in the hot and fancied sectors of power and steel at the time. So I just extrapolated the recent price trends in them without paying any heat whatsoever to their valuations or underlying business models. And over the next 12 to 18 months, I paid my tuition fees to the market. Both these investments crashed 70 to 80% within the first 12 to 18 months of my purchase. So as you can see, vividness and recency biases are very powerful, but highly costly behavioral mistakes. In spite of this bad initial experience, though, my interest about uh, the stock markets remained very, very high all throughout the first seven years of my professional investment banking career. And one fine day, I just came to the realization that, hey, we just have this one short life to live our dreams. And I did not want to waste any further time doing something that I was not truly passionate about. I was so keen for a career shift that uh, in 2015, I relocated to the US without any job in hand. So one of my relatives, uh, he's a US citizen. He sponsored my green card. I was under the impression that since I'm a CFA charter holder, I will easily land a job in the stock market industry uh, because this particular degree is highly valued in the investment industry. But as you know, life is not a bed of roses for those trying to carve their own destiny. 
I got rejected in my first three stock market job interviews within the first six months of coming to the US, but I did not give up. I was firmly adamant that I'm not going to go back to my previous field of work where the presence of uh, perverse incentives constantly led to incentive cost bias and did not suit my personal nature. At the same time, I ran out of whatever little money I brought with me from India and uh, to take care of my living expenses in the US, I did not want to sell even a single stock from my portfolio of Indian uh, companies because I did not want to interrupt the process of compounding. So right. I took up a minimum so I took up a minimum wage job as a front desk hotel clerk at a hotel in San Francisco where I used to work during the graveyard shift for 15 months. So for those who don't know what the graveyard shift refers to, it refers to the shift from 11 p.m. at 11 p.m. at night to 7 a.m. in the morning. And even though it was a big challenge for me emotionally, physically, intellectually and culturally, in hindsight today I highly value those 15 months of my life because for the first time since the beginning of my busy professional career, I finally got some time for myself to read and learn. The pace of work during late night to early morning at the hotel was pretty slow and I made full use of the free time to read every single blog article published since inception on blogs like uh, Microcap micro Club, Safal Niveshak, Janav WordPress, Fundu Professor, Basic Investing and the passionate pursuit of lifelong learning had finally begun. Now, little did I know at the time that I was laying these strong building blocks for compounding in my life. Luck, chance, serendipity and randomness have always played a big role in various aspects of my life till date. During November 2016, uh, one fine night uh, during the course of my routine daily online job search, I just randomly clicked on the quick apply button on a job application on LinkedIn. And wonder of wonders, I was shortlisted for the job interview and that too for a senior role in an investment firm, even though I, I had zero formal work, stock market work experience. Right. And this was the phase in my life during which I was able to, about to realize the power of compounding knowledge in action. All those hundreds of hours spent over the previous 15 months at the hotel reading up those blogs on investing had now built a solid intellectual foundation for me in investing. And this is what I was lacking. This is what I was lacking during the first three stock market job interviews in the US. And this time I was able to successfully clear all the three rounds of my job interview. And, uh, I was offered the role of portfolio manager of global equities and it was like a dream come true for me. And the icing on the cake was that I was getting paid to learn and improve every day for the next four and a half years. I worked as a portfolio manager with Summit Global Investments, a leading asset management company in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I left my job last year at the end of July 2021 to venture on my own personal professional initiatives. And uh, right now I've just launched... Uh, India Focus Fund in the US for accredited investors in this country to take advantage of the big growth opportunity which India as a nation provides over the next few decades. So that's a brief about, about my background, about the professional okay. part. How did you come to write the book? The, yes, now I'm coming to the book part. So again, look, like Steve Jobs has very rightly said that you cannot that we cannot connect the dots looking forward. We can only connect the dots looking backward. So I just talked briefly about the role of luck, chance, serendipity, and randomness. So what happened in November 2016, I joined Twitter for the first time and I started micro-blogging micro my thoughts on history, philosophy, psychology, investing, financial market history. And within a few months of me joining Twitter, two individuals from India flew all the way from that country to Salt Lake City to just to meet me and thank me 
for what I was tweeting, and they said that it was very helpful. Why did you write a book? So the idea, whole idea of writing a book, originated from there. And what 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 I had done during the fifteen months of reading all those blog articles was that I was I have this habit of curating my favorite content into one single place in a word document. So I thought, okay, uh, you know, like why not uh, just organize all this content into a book format and pub- self publish it. I don't, you know that that time the entire idea was simply to share my learnings with the with the world, and I decided to self publish the first edition of the Joys of Compounding uh, by paying all the costs from my own pocket. I did not charge any royalty. It was just my way of giving back to the community of investors from whom I have gotten to learn so much over the years. And Charlie Munger has very beautifully said that the best thing a human being can do is to help another human being no more. And those words really resonated a lot with me. And I thought, okay, right, I can afford to do this right now. Let me just do this. At least, uh, you know, some people will benefit. I never thought that the book will become so so popular. But then, the book became a bestseller in India and the US. Had got started getting getting the attention of many big publishing houses. And in uh, May in the in May of 2019, uh, during the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting weekend, I was uh, at Creighton University signing copies of my self-published book alongside Guy Spire when Miles Thompson from Columbia Business School Publishing came over to meet me and he offered me a publishing contract uh, with them. And the rest, as they say, is history. Today, The Joys of Compounding is an international bestseller in five countries. And regarding how how you know, did the guy spare come to write the foreword? So during September 2018, I traveled to Chicago to attend uh, the Pabre Fund's annual meeting, and I just walked up to Guy and uh, during the meeting, and I just asked him whether he would be willing to write a foreword for the book. Initially, he wanted to write just a blurb or a short uh, you know, testimonial or the, for the back cover. But upon my insistence, he actually was kind enough to write the full-fledged foreword, and that actually got the self-published edition, a lot of recognition in the beginning and became the right. book became a bit high profile and it also got attention of many people in the investor community because Guy is pretty well known in the, in the investing circles. So I think that is probably one of the kindest things that anyone has done for me and I'll be forever grateful to him for helping me out when I was a relatively unknown commodity <laughs> in the early days. So I think that is, you know, just how the entire journey as an author has shaped up. And today the book is also being translated into multiple foreign languages like Japanese, Chinese, and uh, a few other local Indian language, regional languages in India as well. So I'm very thankful for all the love and uh, support which the readers have given me. And I hope to continue the good work in my new role as a fund manager. Uh, Absolutely. I I think it's a great book. And in the answer that you gave, there are like two or three key concepts for investors uh, to learn. Uh, The the first thing is uh, you heavily stress the role of luck and randomness. So Nassim Talib has this wonderful book called Fooled by Randomness, where we look at past track records and past successes and things like that. And we tend to assume that they are mostly because of skill. And we tend to ignore the role that luck plays in shaping our lives. Um, and that that's not exactly the way things turn out. Um, it turns out that for a lot of people, at least, uh, luck plays a tremendous role. And it's good to be upfront about recognizing the role of luck. And it seems like uh, you're, you're doing exactly that. So that is one important lesson for investors. Um, so n- never attribute to skill uh, what may be <laughs> attributable 
purely to mere randomness or luck. Uh, that, that is one uh, key lesson. And the second thing is, I, I really loved how you uh, phrased this. So you had a lot of time on your hands while you were working at this hotel and you just read a lot. And uh, both Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, they are uh, both proponents of, of this. They say uh, they like to find uh, um, fund managers when, when they chose uh, Todd and Ted to manage part of Berkshire's portfolio. One of the criteria they use is how good are these people at reading and assimilating information from a large variety of sources. And that is something investors need to uh, do. Just collect as much information as you can from a variety of different sources and not just collect information, but put it together in your own mind uh, as a uh, what Charlie Munger calls a lattice work of mental models. So see how all these different ideas uh, connect together, reflect on them, think about them, build your own mental models uh, for how the world works and so on. And over a long period of time, knowledge compounds and that helps you become a better investor over time. So that that is something I, I really like. Um, and, and the last thing I like from uh, your, your story is uh, this idea that uh, you didn't want to sell your investment. So you were, um, you, you had a bunch of investments and at the time you did not have a job, but you took up some other job um, uh, which is not your first choice for a job uh, working in a hotel, but you took job because you did not want to interrupt the compounding. And that is such a key point. So um, if you look at how investors behave in bear markets and, and so on, like the one we are going through right now, it is just uh, the people who have the real power uh, as investors are those who don't have to sell their stocks, uh, who determine when you're going to sell, it should be in your hands and not in the hands of the market, or it should not be a function of whatever expenses you have to meet or something like that. If it's a function of all those things, then you may be forced to sell your stocks at inconvenient times. Whereas if you you are the one uh, who decides when to sell, then you have so much more control over the process of compounding. So all, all these key things I, I liked a lot in, in your answer. Uh, so uh, let, let's talk a little bit about your investing process. So you and I are friends. You've told me a few times before that if, if you come across a new uh, ticker, a new company, uh, you can evaluate in just two days whether uh, that company is a good fit for your portfolio or not. Um, so can you take us through what you do during those two days? What does your investing process look like? Do you do any kind of financial modeling? What are the different sources you get information from? Uh, how do you assimilate this information and work out whether this company is right for your portfolio or not? What, what, what does your process look like? So I follow a very rigorous uh, diligence process to avoid errors of commission. The you know the good characteristics the good characteristics of a business is easily known upfront whether it earns good returns on capital employed, whether the guidance for revenue growth is good. All that basic uh, stuff is fine. But in India, one particular thing which has to be paid keen attention to is to check for any poor accounting quality or bad corporate governance. And if you can avoid the the accidents and the blow-ups, be it any stock market in the world, 
the outcome will take care of itself in the long run after that so i follow a comprehensive corporate governance checklist in order to take into consideration whether any stock will come into my portfolio or not so i check for any frequent change in auditors any qualifications raised by auditors is there any abnormal auditor fees does the company have a long list of unaudited foreign subsidiaries does the promoter or the owner of the business have any does he have any political affiliations or any criminal proceedings against him has the company been subject to any uh, uh, enforcement directorate income tax raids in the past or any cases of debarment by the stock market regulator in india what is the history of churn and or attrition in the c suite or the management suite of the company is the key management personnel drawing excessive remuneration or blowing large sums of minority shareholder money on building lavish corporate offices has the company been diluting equity a lot is the promoter holding coming down is the promoter pledging his shares has the company shared wealth with shareholders in the past through dividends and share buybacks is the company taking a loan from the promoter at a above market interest rate are there any related party transactions which are significant what are the current and next employees saying about the company you can get this information on glassdoor.com what are the industry experts saying about the company what are what are reputed investors saying about the company does the promoter have a similar business as the listed entity in his private privately held company because that may lead to a conflict of interest also check for uh, how the accounting quality of the company is so when i say evaluation of accounting quality i'm referring to uh, referring to things like volatility of depreciation rate because the depreciation policy may be ma- modified by the management to manage earnings and also check whether any of the expenses have been written off directly against the reserves and surpluses on the balance sheet instead of being routed through the income statement thus inflating profit also check whether the company is following any aggressive revenue recognition policies is the business working capital intensive what is the trend in accounts receivables and inventory days what is the trends in the historical cash flow from operations to net income ratio because this ratio tells you how much of the net income is getting converted into free cash flow for investing in the financing and and uh, you know investing activities of the company also check for any abnormally high margins of a company versus its peers in a commodity industry because it's very unusual for a commodity company to be earning 30% margins while its peers are earning 10% margins so those kind of instances should make you sit up and take notice and do a deeper dive as to what is causing this also check for any excessive write offs of assets in the past because some indian promoters what they do is they engage in something called gold plating of capex which means that they overstate paid for the plant and machinery and then they siphon off the difference into their personal bank account so check whether the company has done any excessive write offs of assets in the past also check whether the company is capitalizing its routine operating expense because some managements tend to capitalize the operating expense in order in, in order to smooth in out smooth in out earnings so a good example here is the indian pharmaceutical industry in which research and development is a very common operating expense item but some managements right. capitalize this r&d expense to smoothen out their earnings whereas the conservative managements expense out the entire r&d into the income statement as and when it is incurred so you ideally want to side on with the with the conservative managements also check for any also check for the trends in the debt to equity ratio because checking solvency ratios is very very important also check uh, whether there have been any instances of defaults on statutory payments by the company in the past whether the company has got any high contingent liabilities 
or whether the company has any off balance sheet obligations now off balance sheet obligations a good example here is the promoter of a company giving a guarantee of the debt of his other group companies through the listed entity so check for all these red flags and then only once uh, the company gets a green signal a clean chit then only it is allowed for inclusion in the portfolio now some people may ask what is the need to do so much hard work who looks at balance sheet and cash flow statements in a bull market let alone the footnotes to the accounts my response to them is that when you're in a position of fiduciary responsibility and managing other people's hard earned savings then you owe it to them to reciprocate the trust in you at the end of the day investing is a probabilistic activity which means that even after following a sound process we, the outcome may not be always in our favor we you know the stock may even go down even after following a good process but as investors the only two things we control is the process the research process and our personal behavior that is the only two things we have in our control nothing nothing else and it is very important to for every fund manager and investor to understand this that this is why we diversify the whole purpose of diversification is to acknowledge an unknown future because the future is by definition un- unknowable and that is why we just should just diligently follow a very rigorous due diligence process and control our temp- behavior and also have a good temperament during the periodic corrections and volatility in bear markets this is basically what good investors do um, yeah so that 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 was a great answer i, I think Uh, just to unpack this answer will take several episodes <laughs> uh, but yeah you, you are absolutely right so one, one of the key things that you mentioned is if you just avoid mistakes um, you, you don't need terrific returns if you just avoid big mistakes and avoid blowing up uh, the chances are uh, over a long period of time the returns will take care of themselves and that that is such a great point and uh and so you you sort of touched upon one of uh, sort of the key differences between the us and investing in indian companies which is um with indian companies uh, you probably have to be a lot more careful uh, about red flags uh, just just because uh, the the us has a more stable um uh, a, a stable set of rules around the sec or whatever um it's it's just that in in india um a small company that you study um, that that may or may not be related party transactions there may or may not be shady things going on and so on and the incidence of that uh, is generally likely to be higher in india than in the us are, are there any other ways that investing in us is different from investing in india or what what are the other ways uh, so the the uh, predominance of red flags is one thing you have to watch out for uh, things like this but what what are the other ways that investing in india is different so i think uh, the one of the biggest uh, things that differentiates the indian stock market from the american stock markets is that in india you have to be a hardcore fundamental analyst you have to have a hardcore focus on fundamentals in america over the last 13 years as you have seen you know m- many investors in this country were focusing on top line or revenue growth with, li- with little regard for profits or cash flows as you know we we've seen in the last 6 months what has happened all that all those gains of the last decade have basically just come to an end in just very short period of time and 
in india you have to have razor sharp focus on valuations fundamentals like profits cash flows balance sheet strength corporate governance so you need to have a much more deeper research mindset i think when you're investing in indian companies because the margin for error is very very low and unless you have a deep local knowledge of how things work and a very strong uh, network of contacts who can do scuttle but for you and who are actually on the ground finding out what the company is actually up to and what the promoter quality is it's very difficult for a in, for an investor to invest in the indian markets and that is why having a real uh, life experience in the indian markets is so so valuable you need to really understand the nuances and the intricacies of market works absolutely absolutely uh, great point so essentially the difference between buying based on fundamentals and buying based on market is uh, it it's gets to the root of the difference between investing and speculation so when you invest in something you believe that even if the market were to close tomorrow over the next several years just the dividends that you get from this investment will more than make up for the price that you pay for it so if you believe that that is an investment whereas the speculation is you you buy today and then you to somebody at a uh, profit in a in a few days or weeks or years or whatever so uh, speculation requires the market uh, to sort of overvalue what what you bought today whereas investing uh doesn't require the market to do anything it just requires that your thesis about the future cash flows of the company and the future dividends you'll get from it to be correct um, so in in general it's it's a good idea to focus on the fundamentals um and not not just look at uh, markets and multiples and things like that um so you you have this uh, fund where you uh, you're just starting out this fund and you're investing in indian companies so can you tell us a little bit about what are uh, the features of india that you find most attractive like why why do you think there are far more opportunities in india uh, than in the us uh, what future long term economic prospects do you see and uh, how do you think this will translate into returns for investors in uh, small cap indian companies let's look at the big picture to begin with so as we all know india is the world's biggest major fastest growing economy in terms of size and gdp in real gdp growth and uh, charlie munger has very rightly said that the first rule of fishing is to go where the fish are so basically if you look at the uh, two fundamental drivers of gdp growth in any country it is only two factors population growth in the in terms of the working age population and the productivity growth right and right. as per a research published by collaborative fund research recently over the next 30 years apart from us which will you know which will benefit from favorable immigration policies and attracting talent from around the world us will experience uh, 11% immigration policies <laughs> no till uh, as per the research and as per that particular research us will continue to attract talent from around the world and have a positive change positive addition in its working age population over the next 30 years but apart from us india will be the only second big economy in the world to experience a 19% growth in its estimated working age population so that so the first driver of uh, long term gdp growth which is change in the working age population india benefits from that during the same period of the next 30 years many countries will face a demographic uh, challenge 
example south korea japan has already been facing that for many decades china will also face the similar issues this is where basically india will get a big driving uh, force in terms of its long term gdp growth as far as the productivity growth is growth in productivity is concerned so as stock market investors see where does the maximum potential for positive change lies it lies in places of inefficiencies right wherever the, the greater the inefficiency the greater the potential for positive change and that is why india you know today even today the per capita uh, uh, gdp of india is just a thousand dollars and history has taught us that whenever a nation there are two big things here whenever a nation transitions from 2.5 trillion dollars of gdp to 5 trillion dollars of gdp those countries stock markets experience the fastest pace of change so if you look at the past stock market histories of uh, countries like japan china south korea and even and even the us whenever those countries transition from 2.5 trillion dollars of gdp to 5 trillion their stock markets did not just double their stock markets tripled or quadrupled and maximum rate of change in the stock markets took place because what happens is as and individuals uh, per, uh, per capita gdp income basically goes from 1000 to 3000 then in those cases your basic expenditure on items like food goes up very slightly but the balance $2000 when they go into discretionary consumption and financialization of savings you get an exponential jump in those two categories to the extent of 5x to 10x starting from a very low base so this is the exciting opportunity which india also offers to global investors today uh, today india is standing at a gdp of 2.8 trillion dollars and it took india 60 years to reach its first trillion dollars of gdp but the next uh, second trillion took just 8 years and the subsequent uh trillions are expected to be in much faster succession now there is one big overarching theory which i have which allows me to joyfully average upwards in the great indian businesses that i own it is this that over the next few decades trillions of dollars are going to get added to india's gdp and using a simple assumption that the market cap to gdp approximates one over time you can just imagine the amount of wealth creation that lies in store for investors in great indian businesses trillions of dollars and what's going to happen over the next few decades is that the nation's best managed businesses best managed companies with proven track records of execution and demonstrated ability to scale up their operations they will capture the bulk of this upcoming wealth creation boom in the indian stock markets so this is where we, as as investors we need to focus our attention this is we so should not like a power law distribution in in the in what companies get the lion's share of the growth in gdp correct and this and this is proven by history in the american stock markets as well as per a study published by professor bidenberg in the university of arizona he basically showed showed how all 100% of the net wealth creation in the american stock markets between 1926 to, to 2016 was driven by just 4% of the listed companies that's a extreme example of a power law and it just again goes to show that ultimately in the long term fundamentals and and you know individual stock picking wins in the short term you know markets are driven by liquidity and sentiment but over the very long run of multiple decades it is the fundamentals which ultimately matter the time is i think i think the best test of like nasim talib says time is the best test of resilience of anything in life so this is the same holds true for the indian stock markets just as it holds true for the american stock market so this is the very big picture and one more 
a very important point i would like to make here is that as investors what are we exactly trying to do we are simply trying to maximize our odds of success when we are making an investment decision right so you can one way one of the ways to maximize your odds of success is to enter into a company or a stock just when it is about to take off into a high earnings growth trajectory right for example just when a company breaks even for example when a loss making tech company saas company just starts to break even at a income statement level then that after that operating leverage takes over and you get exponential returns right similarly today in india you have got the corporate profits to gdp at a decade decadal low you also and any country's growth is primarily driven by banking credit what it happened after the uh, modi government administration came into power in 2014 they started putting into place a slew of tough reforms like the insolvency in banking code and that led to all the banking bank all the entire banking industry in india cleaning up their balance sheets and uh, just cleaning up cleaning up all the non performing assets as a result for last 7 8 years the credit growth in the system was very muted so that is why india underwent a period of very anemic slow economic growth for the last 7 uh, 8 years but now that the balance sheets of all those banking system has been cleaned up plus you're having corporate uh, profits to gdp ratio at a decadal low and also the corporate sector in india has basically delevered and as you know deleveraging is a very painful process through which india went through over the next uh, over the last 7 uh, 8 years right. now that the corporate balance sheets have been cleaned up now that the banking system balance sheet has been cleaned up and you're starting off at a low corporate profit to gdp ratio and a depressed return on equity level at the stock market on the overall stock market level so basically you are basically in terms of the big macro picture you are entering at nearly or around the lows as far as the macro picture is concerned so you have already put the odds in your favor by entering at the bottom of uh, economic cycle apart from that in the last 6 uh, months the small cap index in india has fallen 30% so your valuations have also compressed the valuation multiples have compressed the macro picture has uh, basically bottomed out this is what makes me excited to start a fund during this particular time because it, as you know it is psychological coiled spring analogy it's a coil spring analogy and as you know it's psychologically very challenging to start a fund during so much during so much uh, pessimism all around all around but in the long term it is the most financially rewa- financially rewarding to do so because you as a fund manager you want to basically enter at the point of pessimism this holds true for both investors and fund managers you want to ideally enter when there is a lot of pessimism because good good news and good sentiment do not come along with good stock prices so basically uh in the long run humanity does its job capitalism does its job but in the in the short term we keep just focusing too much on the, the negativity all around because of a phenomena called recency bias so this is what we need to know as investors and take advantage of in order to make long term wealth uh, absolutely well said well said uh, so that um, in in your answer you you touched upon one thing so uh, the the fund management aspect of it so it's one thing to invest our own personal money and it's another thing to take money from a bunch of investors and then invest that money so uh, in what ways is running a fund different from running a personal portfolio it's very very different because uh, when you are managing your own personal portfolio you can take a greater amount of risk but uh, when you are actually managing a fund on behalf of the public then there are certain finer attributes that you have to pay attention to namely two attributes the first point is quality so basically 
I'll give you an example here. So in my in my uh, personal demand account in India, I may uh, hold a share of a microfinance company. So microfinance uh, lending in India refers to subprime lending. It's a very profitable business, but highly cyclical. So right now, after the recent uh, regulations uh, put in place by the Reserve Bank of India, the outlook for microfinance companies have become very favorable in the Indian market. So they're expected to enjoy high growth for the next two years. But when you're running a fund, you basically want to avoid taking tail risk. So because these uh, these category of companies in India have had a history of blowing up during past uh, uh, you know adverse economic cycles. So when you're managing a fund, you want to make it as durable and as sustainable as possible. But when you're running your personal money in your personal demand account, then you can afford to take a bit more risk and uh, you can actually exit very easily. But when you're managing a fund, it's very difficult to exit these positions very, very quickly because these are basically very small and tiny tiny market cap companies in India. And you want to focus on, apart from quality, you also need to focus on the liquidity aspect. So like when constructing the portfolio for my India fund in the US, uh, there were two uh, small, two micro cap companies in India, which I was interested to buy. But when I looked at their average trading volumes, it, I figured out that I would have to acquire 100% of the trading volumes for those two stocks. And that it would take seven days. And 100% of the trading volumes over those seven days, average trading volume for those seven days to establish even a 3% position in the fund. So quality and liquidity in terms of trading volumes, these are two very important attributes you need to take into consideration when you are managing a fund as, as compared to your personal portfolio. And and very, very importantly, the investment process. The investment process which you select for the fund needs, needs to be repeatable, replicable, and scalable. The strategy needs to be scalable. Otherwise, you know, you cannot run a fund. It's fine. You know, you can follow whatever strategy you want for your purpose. But when you're running a fund, you need to, at the very onset, be very clear. It's, it's one that you can stick with for multiple decades. And it needs to be scalable and repeatable. Very, very, very important. For example, what I do is I assume a hypothetical AUM of $50 million dollars. And I assume a three percent position of that that comes to one point five million dollars, and then I simply calculate how many days would it take me to put one point five million dollars to work in each of the companies that I'm selecting, and right. that is why I was able to exclude these two particular stocks from my portfolio because because of liquidity, liquidity consideration. I'll tell you. See, I'm a big believer in the power of vicarious learnings and I've seen how many hedge fund managers and the limited partners have, bl have blown up in the last decade during multiple periods of economic crisis. What, hap what happens is the fund manager ends up selling all his liquid positions during a period, during a bear market when they face large redemptions. Then what they do is they don't sell all the stocks equally in equal proportion. What they do is they sell the liquid positions in the fund Right. In order, in order to take care of the, in, in order to take care of the redemptions, and that is the last thing you want to do, right? That is irrational behavior. But this is why having a high quality limited partner base is so so important. Uh, right. Uh, that that all all great points. So uh, again, it it comes back to the point that if you can decide what you're going to sell and when you're going to sell, that is a huge amount of power you have in your hands. Whereas if your hand is forced by redemptions or something and you're forced to sell something at exactly the wrong time, then your returns are not likely to be very great over time. 
so this is such a key point for for both individual investors and uh, fund managers uh, but it the, the way it manifests itself is different in in the two cases so so it's super important to be able to control uh, when and what you will sell at what time so that that is a, a great point and towards the end of that answer you also touched upon um, saying you need the right kind of clients so if you if you get a wrong kind of client for your uh, firm you may get some uh, assets under management aum out of it uh, but in the in the long run it's uh, it's not likely to be a mutually happy relationship so uh, how how do you go about selecting uh, who are the right clients for your firm and um, with, with what kind of people you will be able to develop a long term relationship uh, as a fund manager right so the two things which i primarily try to understand is their attitude towards sharp volatility in the stock market and the time horizon for investing in the fund so till now i've uh, had a personal one on one zoom meetings with seven uh, potential clients and i've said yes to three of them i said no so the reason for that was that their uh, time horizon was too too short and as a fund manager i want access to patient capital because ultimately in order for in order for long term compounding to work you want you don't want a situation of having uh, illiquid you know illiquid short term assets and then investing with a long term time horizon that doesn't work out really so it's very important to understand the client's attitude towards volatility and the time horizon these you just uh, pay attention to these two factors then you can select the right long term minded partners for your fund this is basically how i go about it um, absolutely uh, great points uh, so so a large number of fund managers uh, ultimately end up underperforming uh, the market right we we've all seen studies saying uh, when you start actually against you because after fees a large number of fund managers end up actually underperforming the market uh but the way i look at it is somewhat different in that i say okay when has a fund manager done their job uh it's not just a function of whether the fund manager has outperformed the market or not it is also a function of how much risk the fund manager has taken so it, it it's possible to outperform at least in the short run by taking on excessive risk uh, but that's not what you you want your fund manager to do and secondly uh you have to ask yourself if if you decide to invest with a fund manager uh you have to ask yourself what your returns will be if you did not invest with the fund manager so if you are the kind of person who takes um uh, who who panics at exactly the wrong time or uh you you take uh, stock advice from um random sources that you see you you just uh, see some ceo talking on cnbc and then you go and buy their stock if you are the kind of person who makes those kinds of impulsive investment decisions then you may be better off giving your money to a even if that fund manager ultimately ends up underperforming the market by a percentage point or so the fund manager has still delivered to you better results than what you would have been able to achieve on your own because of your nature uh so can you talk a little bit about how fund managers so what a successful fund manager is performance is of course one key component of it but another component is also just the what what you call in your book the emotional return uh, to clients so how do you manage the emotional state of your clients and make sure uh, they feel 
secure. They feel that their money is in good hands. And so they are more likely to stick around for the long term to build, to build wealth with you. So can, can you talk a little bit about uh, this, this kind of holistic fund management principle? Yes. So like, there are two parts to that question. First part was uh, what are the various su- success attributes for ensuring a successful fund management business? That's the first part. And the second part was about delivering a positive emotional return to clients and enabling it at night. So let me uh, talk about the first aspect. Key success attributes to position for longevity as an emerging fund manager in this business is to have long-term minded partners because patient capital builds resilience during periods of underperformance. So that's the first point. Second, do not restrict yourself to a particular investing style or strategy just to appease the investors of your fund. Be flexible and open-minded, ready to adapt to changing conditions and make sure, this is very important, make sure that your fund documents reflect that. So uh, for any uh, particular hedge fund, there are three primary documents which are sent to investors after you agree to onboard them. The first document is the private placement memorandum. The second document is the limited partnership agreement. And the third document is the subscription document. So when you're preparing your fund documents, it's very important to have this leeway, this flexibility to you know, for uh, adapting your strategy in future if the market conditions or the industry conditions necessitate the same. That's the second point. The third, so the success. What do these different documents do? Can, can you tell us a little bit about what is in each of these documents? So the, the most important document is the private placement memorandum because that is the legally binding document that contains all the terms of the subscription agreement uh, for investing into the fund. It also talks about the investor investment manager's background, his, his, his investing philosophy, what are the key risk factors of investing in the fund, what are the uh, management fees, what is the performance allocation terms, and what are the withdra- uh, redemption or withdrawal terms of the fund. And uh, how will you know the uh, which are the various exp- operating expenses of the fund which will be charged to the fund investors and which are not uh, charged to the fund investors? The more clearly you can write and document everything in the in the in this particular document, the better it is. And uh, the p- private placement memorandum is in turn governed by the limited partnership agreement that contains much more in-depth detail on each of these points which I told which I just told you about and finally the subscription documents uh, basically just refers to doing a simple background check on the investor which whether you know uh, he's an accredited investor or not whether he's complying with the anti-money laundering provisions or not what is what is contribution which he's putting and the bank account details as well so all this all this is very standardized but you ideally want to Re, you know, iterate, go through multiple iterations of these documents, like I like I did. In fact, I just uh, just a few days ago, I just finally uh, was able to finalize the final version of these documents, even after going through multiple iterations, because there were a lot of clauses which I just, just did not feel that uh, they were fair to the investors. So I just deleted a lot of those clauses from the fund documents because at the end of the day, when I was structuring this fund, I was just asking myself that if I was an what would I like to see and hear from the fund manager? What is the kind of fund structure which I would like to see, which would be most fair? And it took me so much time. The golden rule, do, do unto others. I <laughs> would like them to do unto you. Right, because what goes around ultimately comes around. And at the end of the day, you, at the end of the day, you want to sleep peacefully at night, able to face the mirror every day. Uh, there is a saying in my book, there is no pillow so soft as a clear conscience. And ultimately, I think 
good you know good deeds and uh, good work ultimately pays off in the long term it's a painful in the short term to do the right thing but in the long term it, it pays off very very handsomely so actually honesty transparency integrity sincerity authenticity all of these actually are very good business attributes but all of them are good only in the long term in the short a bit of pain and difficulty but in the long term like buffett and munger have displayed uh, if you just have integrity in your de- dealings with all your stakeholders on a daily basis in the long run and ultimately it does work out so these are definitely things to keep in mind okay so just to come back to that uh, point about the very success attributes i talked about two long term minded right. partners and an adaptable mindset the third point very important having a low cost frugal setup because this confers longevity to you in your personal life and also to your fund so this attribute of frugal life gives you longevity throughout life this, this is a very fundamental principle but as we have seen in the last 6 months many of this uh, you know high flying tech hedge funds is the shut shop because they were having all this lavish offices and uh, ex- hiring all these expensive analysts and what happens is when you have a very high operating cost structure then you are just you know forced to keep re- trying to raise as much aum as possible in order to pay for all these costs and that is where you basically have a possibility of blowing up so focus on having a very low cost frugal setup just avoid all the bells and whistles that's the third point point again very very important all the emerging investment managers should choose the service providers for the fund after a very careful careful analysis in order to ensure a smooth functioning of the daily operations you know because the last thing you want is to uh, to choose a low quality service provider for the fund in the uh, attempt to save some money and then it is very costly to part ways with those service providers later on the damage can be really really big so you have to try to providers meaning auditors and others yes so basically any hedge fund has got uh, basically four five primary service providers uh, in uh, for example the fund administrator then you have got the corporate banking partner you have right. got the fund auditor and uh, you also have the prime broker and the custodian where the assets of the fund are held and the broker which conducts all the dealing for the fund so these are basically some of the uh, key service providers and also you also have a legal or compliance support uh, service provider kbb law uh, and uh, kbb law specializes in cross border uh, hedge funds and they have extensive experience of working in the us with india focus funds so you know for the la- it took me well, almost a year to just to finalize the service providers for the fund because i was shopping around to get the best deal so for for when i initially got the quotations from the service providers which are, which are initially shortlisted it, the annual running cost was coming to almost 100000 dollars but just by shopping around and negotiating hard on behalf of myself and the fund investors i was eventually able to crunch down the annual cost from 100000 dollars to 30000 dollars so i was able to save 70% costs of uh, running this fund while at the same time ensuring that i get very high quality service providers but it took time i didn't just, i did not want to just rush into selecting any service provider at the very first uh, attempt i really wanted to bite my time and get the best value for mine and my clients money so that's these are the very success attributes of uh, uh positioning for longevity as an emerging manager in the investment business is the second question which you had asked was in what ways can fund managers actually help clients sleep better at night so here i would say that investors should look for those fund managers who invest their own personal money into the fund and have skin in the game this gives this gives clients a great deal of a feeling of safety because they know that uh, the, since the fund managers own personal money is at stake here 
right therefore he'll be very conservative prudent and less risk taking in his behavior and approach and the clients can sleep peacefully at night another way to help clients sleep peacefully to handhold them and also guide them and also educate them during bear markets and periods of sharp, abrupt market uh, sharp market corrections because what client what i've observed over the years is in this business, in this industry ultimately clients do not want opaqueness they want transparency they want easy accessibility to, to the fund manager and as long as you can just be there for them just you know tell them you know give them your email address give them your phone number really easily accessible also give them all the contact details of the fund the email addresses the phone numbers share everything transparently with all your investors the more you do this in the very beginning see you don't want to be reactive in a in a future uh, down down market scenario you want to be proactive and do all these good things up front if you right. can do this in the beginning of the relationship itself because ultimately at the end of the day this uh, fund management business is a relationship business if you can focus on doing all these good things up front in the very beginning the clients then can be uh, very relaxed and reassured that okay you know this fund manager is there for us and whenever we you know take care also if investment firms focus on generating the best possible risk adjusted returns and maintain an ongoing dialogue with clients regarding their process their thinking and their philosophy in a clear manner the long term outcome will take care of itself this is basically all that you need to do just focus on a good process and maintaining maintain an ongoing dialogue about your philosophy and process and thinking with your clients this is this is the basics but you'll be surprised to know how few fund managers actually do this because they just want to maintain this you know this mystique this aura this uh, element, you know this environment of secrecy around what they're doing but i think just like in personal relationships these things don't work in business as well just be open and authentic and the right people will self select themselves into your fund over the long term um all absolutely great points thank you so much yeah that 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 all makes sense to me so fo- focus on maintaining um, an honest transparent long term relationship i think that's good advice for anybody running a relationship business and it's great advice for personal relationships as well as you say um all right so i i think i have uh, taken up enough of your time and i would also like to give the audience uh, a chance to ask some questions so uh, if anybody wants to step up and uh, ask a question uh, we'll we'll take questions now okay we have uh, our next caller is alex uh, alex you're on mute hey thank you hey gotham how are you uh thanks for everything you guys do um my question is a simple one uh i spent a lot of time like investigating reading 10k's reading both uh, washington is meeting trying to uh i don't know everything that's out there what are you thinking about uh how i mean what what is the chance of me having a full time job beating the market because i mean i do it obviously because i love it but at the same time i mean i kind of want to beat the market what is your thinking on that question obviously managing less than let's say a million dollars so are you talking about <laughs> Is he, is he talking about becoming a full-time investor in the markets, Tanke? No, no, no. I'm talking about uh, just um, managing my own money by spend all of my free time investigating. But at the same time, I know how hard it is to beat the market. 
So what would be your thinking on a person like that wants to be the market, but obviously he's not allowed to spend all his time doing it. So like, I mean, what are like my chances? What would be your, your thinking on that part? Well, I would simply say if, if a person of average intelligence like me can do it, and if, if a person like me can make a few million dollars from investing in the markets over the last decade, anyone can do it. It just requires a lot of dedication and a lot of passion for the intellectual game of investing. And uh, as long as you've got a lot of intellectual curiosity, and if you are willing to work very hard and go to the lesser discovered places, especially in special situations and small cap and mid cap companies in your particular stock market, I think as long as you do the good stock selection, you should you can make a big wealth creation in the long term. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, great answer. I I, I would agree with Gautam on that. Uh, Although one one point I would like to make is that um, if you just take a random person, uh, what what are the chances that they will, if they are active investors, what are the chances that they will beat beat the market? Uh, that is a, a fairly low chance. Uh, uh, take a, a random person, but that on this person uh, doing uh, deep research or uh, reading ten Ks and ten Qs understanding the fundamental concepts of investing, being uh, able to think in a contrarian way, being able to control their own temperament and so on. That is a much narrower set of people. And those people typically uh, have bet much better odds of beating the market than a random person. So if you just uh, ask, what, what are my chances of beating the market? It also depends a little bit on what kind of investor you are and do you have all these attributes that are required uh, for success. Uh, so uh, the next caller is Abhinash. Hello, am I audible? Yes, you are. Uh, that was an excellent uh... I mean, Gautam is extremely articulate and he puts across things very well. I just wanted to know what is Gautam's opinion of ETFs and index funds in India? I know it would be a conflict of interest for him to espouse their cause, but what would be an honest opinion? On the contrary, I would highly recommend ETFs and index funds to any individual who's just starting out in the market. I think the natural progression for people is to start off with index funds, then go to actively mutual funds, and then finally graduate to uh, the you know act actively managed hedge funds uh, in the US or portfolio management services in India. I think that is the natural progression which people should take. Unless you want to transition to picking stocks directly yourself after investing in actively managed mutual funds, you can uh, definitely take professional help. Just like, you know, if we do not hesitate to take professional help from doctors and uh, other lawyers and other you know, highly specialized people, we shouldn't hesitate to take a highly uh, specialized advice from fund managers as well. But yes, start off with index funds or ETFs, then go to actively manage mutual funds, then try to pick stocks yourself. And if you struggle to pick stocks directly, then you can take the advice of a, or the help of a professional fund manager. I mean, by this progression, you mean ETFs and index funds are the 
are the bottom of the ladder, are the most inferior, uh, and therefore uh, should come. Not inferior, I would say they're just much more simpler in terms of so. The primary determinant of long-term returns in these products is cost. So, you know, if you look, for, for example, in the US, if you just go for a simple low-cost Vanguard uh, S&P 500 index fund, they just charge a few basis points as the fees for managing that particular uh, index fund. So, focus a lot on costs when you're starting off with these products. And then basically what happened, I would say, say, the level of complexity and diligence keeps rising at every single level. So, first you start off with the simplest and then gradually go up the ladder as you keep learning along the way about the intricacies of investing and the market in general. As your knowledge keeps going up, then you keep going up the complexity ladder. It's very simple. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was a good answer. Okay. Uh, do, do we have uh, any more callers or is Abhinash our last caller? Uh, I, I believe Alex wants to ask another question. Uh, 10K, can I just add one more point to that response to Avinash about, you know, oh. he was talking about, you know, whether index funds are, you know, lowest on in terms of it and whether they're inferior. Let me point, it, point this out right now that more than 90% of the active, active mutual funds and hedge funds in America have actually underperformed these index funds over the last, if you look at any horizon or more than five years, you look at five year, 10 year, 15 years. In the long run, simplicity wins. And these index funds have actually outperformed all these actively managed funds over the last many years. So it's not about infinity at all. It's just that people tend to confuse complexity with higher returns. They just feel that you know the more complex the product, the more chances for, chances for higher returns. But in the long run, fee, the fees and the costs eat up the majority of the returns for the end investor. And that is why... I've structured my fund as a zero management fee structure modeled after the original Buffett partnership just to be fair to the clients and to maximize the net returns for my clients. And also, you know, when I was running running the numbers, you know, Buffett used to charge a 25% performance allocation on returns above 6%. But in order to maximize the net returns for my investors, I decided to have a lower performance allocation. So I reduced it to 20%. So ultimately, just by looking at the fund structure, you'll understand where the fund manager is coming from and whether he has your best interests at heart or not. So just focus a lot on two things, the fee structure of the fund manager and his uh, investing philosophy. And you know, what is his long, whether his orientation is long-term or not. So these are the three when you're evaluating a fund manager to, to invest your money. Yes, 10K. Uh, yeah, yes, definitely. Important to focus on returns after all taxes and fees yes. and everything. Um, and... Uh, I, I would actually add inflation to that list. So returns after taxes, fees, and inflation. Uh, that That is ultimately what, what you um, get at the end of the day. So you, you have to focus on, on that. Right. And typically, uh, if a fund manager charges, uh, well, there are two points here. If, if they charge a high fees, that means uh, they need a much higher, they, they have a much higher performance hurdle because after fees, they have to perform and deliver. And the second thing is, uh, when when a fund manager um, proposes, uh, when, when they do complicated styles of investing, yes, uh, the chances of higher returns may be uh, more, but then uh, the chances of blowing up may also be higher. And ultimately, you blow up. And uh, so, so complexity is fine as long as 
complexity reduces risk. But if complexity has, as a byproduct, increased risk, uh, that is usually not a trade-off to make in the long run. Uh, the, the, the next caller is, um, uh, well, uh, Alex had another question. So we'll, we'll take Alex's question. Um, so you can go ahead now, Alex, and unmute yourself. Thank you. Sorry again. I mean, there wasn't anyone else. Um, this question, I wanted to ask it. I mean, I actually went to the, yeah, to Omaha this year, and I wanted to ask it to, to him, but I wasn't lucky enough to get in the raffle. And, hey, Alex, um, is there a way you could get a little closer to to the microphone? Uh, yeah, can you hear me now? Uh, no? A little better, yeah. Okay, let me, give me a second. Better now or no? Um, I, I don't really see much, much of a difference, but okay, go ahead. Uh, talk slowly and loudly. <laughs> we'll, we'll try to make sense okay. of the question. Now? Yeah, that, that works. Okay. So my question is, um, Buffett always advises people to invest uh, over time, like part of your salary in an index fund, let's say. My question is, what if you get a like fixed amount, like let's say you get $200,000 because you inherit from somebody, how will you do, like how would you invest 200000 in an index fund? Would you just blow it right away in the market? Or will you just do it over like, I don't know, two years, three years? Less. I think best, one of the best strategies is something called dollar cost averaging. So just keep investing a, you know, a fixed amount every month. This enables you to buy less in bull, in expensive markets and buy more in uh, bear markets and cheap markets. And over the long run, basically this dollar cost averaging or in India, what we call SIP, systematic investment plan, this basically works out pretty well over the long term. I, I would not recommend going in, going all in at, at once. Get a basic sense of the temperature of the market, like Howard Marks says, and then decide. Obviously, if it's a abrupt market crash like March to March 2020, then you can afford to actually put everything in, in one single go. But in normal markets or in expensive markets, it's generally better to average it out over time. Uh, right, and if you want to learn more about this particular uh, topic. Uh, there is this guy called Nick Majuli. He's he's written this wonderful book called Just Keep Buying. And that, that book addresses exactly this question. If you have a lot of money, is it better to just invest it all at once or is it better to invest it over time? And he has done quite a bit of research on this question and considered different kinds of markets and figured out uh, what, historically speaking, what percentage of the time uh, one of these strategies will outperform the other and things like that. So if you want to learn more about it, I would suggest get that book and read it. Okay. Thank you so much again. And appreciate you, you guys' this time. Sure. Yeah, Alex. Okay. Do, do we have any more callers or uh, is this it? All right. Uh, so usually when we uh, run run out of callers, uh, I like to remind people of this quote by Confucius. Oh, okay. I don't have to remind people. 
Uh, we have Ricardo who wants to ask a question. Hello. Hello. SNP. Are you hearing me? Yes, I can hear you. All right. Good afternoon to you and your guests. Thanks for having this program. Um, just a question or suggestion. I saw the book that um, your guests had written, and I I'm not sure, but I would love if you would consider having an audible version of that book. I find myself and many others able to listen to books like like these, you know, stuck in traffic at work, and I even have of of audible version of books that I I um, listen to, so I can actually um, switch between the physical and listening. So it's just a suggestion. I am definitely going to try to get a copy of his book, the physical copy, but I would love for him to consider an audible version, an audio version. Gautam, is that an audible version or no? Uh, not currently, but thanks for your, thank you for your suggestion, Ricardo. I'll definitely pass on this request to Columbia Business School Publishing. I'll pass it to them. Hopefully they, hopefully they will publish the Audible. Thank you very much. Thanks. And thanks for Thank you. Okay. Uh, so uh, the next caller is uh, Ansh Mittal. Hi, Tenki. Hi, Gautam. I'm Audible. Yes. Yes. Uh, hi. So I just wanted to ask a bit of, a, I guess, a personal finance kind of a question. I was just wondering if uh, during this inflationary period, is it a wise time to sort of invest in yourself, especially in an expensive sort of education? Uh, I'm sorry if this is not a relevant place to ask this type of questions. Oh, no, it's actually a very good question. And in fact, Buffett had given Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. He said that the best investment you can make is an investment in yourself. And you know, if during and even during periods of inflation, if you are the best lawyer in town, if you are the best doctor in town, if you are the best in what in your field of work, then you'll be able to always grow your purchasing power and always be able to demand a very high service income for the services that you render. So it's always a great time. It's never too late to invest in oneself. I wish I had only I, I wish I had learned about this life principle much more earlier in life. I learned about it pretty late, relatively later. But uh, there's uh, the best time to start was yesterday, and the best time, the next best today. So immediately start investing in yourself. There's a good education is uh, has basically got no downside. I think it's only got upside. And a good education also gives you a lot of optionality in the future. If you have a, as long as you have a, you have an open mind and you're willing to learn from everyone and keep growing along the way. I think uh, the opportunities in today's digital world is are just limitless. So definitely invest in yourself and your education. Uh, that, that that's a great point by uh, Gautam. So one one thing I want to add is Buffett said, uh, if you are the best at what you do, uh, you will always be able to command a high price, inflation or not. And that that is absolutely right. One caveat in that uh, you have to be good at a marketable skill so you have to be good at something that the market is willing to pay for if you're if you're the best doctor then 
that's great because the market uh, needs doctors. People need doctors, and the market is willing to pay for doctors. Uh, but if if you're the uh, the the best, uh, uh, I, I don't know some some skill that is not very marketable, uh, <laughs> then. Um, it, it may or may not make the, sense the, the to skill, take out the skill, a, a large yeah, education the, loan or something like that. The skill has to be in high demand. Otherwise, there's no point of uh, specializing in that particular skill. That That's is why right, the intersection exactly. of both these points is important. It's a, it's a, there's a Japanese phenomenon called Ikigai, which is basically an interse- intersection of your passion, your profession, and your vocation. So basically, what you love to do, if it if it's the same as the work that you do, and if it's something which the world needs and what the world is willing to pay you for, that is called Egikai. So that is when you achieve uh, self-actualization in your life. Uh, yes, exactly. So, so modulo that, um, generally investing in yourself, picking up new skills, uh, picking up marketable skills. Uh, it, it, whether you live in inflationary times or not, uh, it just helps you uh, and uh, spot new opportunities. And um, as as Gautam said, maintain this level of optionality where you can branch off into uh, a number of different things that you want to do and, and so on. Uh, but at the same time, I would also caution uh, against uh, getting too expensive uh, an, an education because once, once you have uh, very large and things like that. Uh, although inflation is helpful for borrowers because it uh, you, you borrow in today's dollars and you pay it back in uh, less valuable dollars over time. So inflation helps borrowers. But still, uh, when, when you get out of the, uh, when you're just starting out in life, uh, you, you don't necessarily want uh, 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 to be burdened with a huge debt load or something like that. So as, as far as possible, yes, acquiring skills is great. But try to acquire them in a cost-effective way, and not not take on huge amounts of uh, student loan and things like that. That 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 would be my recommendation. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, then the point that you raised is uh, one of the main things that I had in my mind, uh, like not being not getting too much of an expensive education uh, with regards to loans and everything. Thank you, Gautam, for your words as well. I definitely try to re, um, keep on investing in myself. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Absolutely. So the next caller is uh, Vamsi. Hello, can you hear me, guys? Yes. Yeah, hi, 10K. Hi, Gautam. Um, I am not a resident of the US or India. Right. So not a tax resident of US or India and wanted to check if there was some advice for global um, citizens uh, in terms of investing into the Indian equities, but in a US dollar structure so that um, your wealth is maintained in US dollar, uh, but you're not taxed in the US, um, in the US for it. Right. So there are some uh, portfolio management service providers in SK Group and Marcellus and a, and a few other fund houses, we, which actually have a product called AIF, which is an alternative investment fund. It allows uh, for global investors to invest into the Indian markets in dollars and withdraw their uh, money in dollars as well without getting taxed in either India or the US. So that's those are you know some options you can explore if you want to invest in the Indian market. Okay. Thanks, Gautam. Thanks, so, uh, you said AIF... Um... 
AIF. It's called Alternative Investment Fund. Just type AIF India. You'll get a lot of uh, good options to choose from. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you, Gautam. Thanks, sure. Tenkaya. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm completely out of my depth on this question. So I'm glad that Gautam was here to answer it. Uh, looks like Abhinash wants to... Uh, oh, no. Okay. All right. Uh, so uh, I think that, that that is all the questions that we have. So uh, I'd like to thank Gautam once again. Uh, Gautam, thank you very much for coming on the show and talking about your book, talking about your fund, uh, general principles of uh, fund management and so on. Uh, it was very illuminating. Um, and uh, I, I hope I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I hope uh, the listeners also uh, learned it, le- le- learned some useful things out of it. So uh, just one last question, which is, uh, so if, if people are interested in, uh, if US-based investors call and they're interested in learning more about your fund, uh, learning more about your book, uh, things like that, if, if they want to uh, follow you on your, uh, follow your work and things like that, get in touch with you, what, what would be a good way for them to do that? Sure. So for learning more about my book, uh, they can pawning.com. And for learning more about this India fund in the US, wealthindia.com. I specifically, especially advise uh, them to go through our owner's manual, which is published on the website, because that clearly articulates our investment philosophy and our thinking. So that will help uh, them get a good understanding of how we operate and how we plan to invest for the long term in the Indian stock market. And I can also be reached on LinkedIn and Twitter. Okay, perfect. Uh, So thank you all very much for showing up and patiently listening to us. I hope this episode was useful to you. And um, uh, thanks to Gautam as well. And see you all uh, next Sunday. Bye-bye.